0: Welcome back to the Malouli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 445. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tim Malouli, and here with me today in the studio is Tom Malouli.
1: Happy to be here in studio. In, <laughs>
0: live in studio. Yeah,
1: in the otherwise called conference room. Right.
0: It's a multifaceted... Uh, multi-purpose multi- stadium. Yeah, exactly. Let's dive in. We've got a couple topics that we wanted to talk about today. Um, the inspiration for this first topic of conversation came from a post from Nick Majuli, who works uh, for Ritholt's Wealth Management up in New York City. Um, we'll link in the show notes to the full post. But his overarching theme of the, the post this week was about what he called down sideways markets uh, and how periods after a, or, or these down and sideways markets tend to be pretty bullish. He's talking about how the market environment that we are currently in, we saw the market drop about 20% at the beginning of last year. It's essentially been sideways ever since. We've kind of just been churning back and forth, making up ground, giving up ground, kind of going back and forth. To put some numbers
1: behind that, we started... 2022 with an S&P 500 around between 47 and 4,800. We got down at one point to about 3,600, but we have spent an amazing amount of time hanging around 4,000 to 4,200. So still down that 15%-ish range, although we're up 9% now in just the last few months. Mm -hmm. NASDAQ is doing even better. We'll get to those numbers in a moment. It's interesting the way markets go. People we talk to will say, oh, the market has been terrible now for a year and a half. Some people will even stretch that and say the market's been bad for two years. No, it really hasn't. The market hit a high in January of 22. And Yes, it went straight down for about six months. That's pretty typical action in a bear market. And then we have this digestion period. And I'd like to say with confidence that we're getting to the end of that. But I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think on one hand, it's good news that the market essentially stopped the free fall and it it only went down uh quickly for for six months and then we've kind of been churning sideways so in a in a sense it's good that it stopped going down Uh, on the other hand not super encouraging that we haven't just come come straight back up like we did in 2020 not saying that that is supposed to happen or anything but it's obviously you would you would love to see a v-shaped uh drop and then recovery everybody Um, seems to replay the last cycle
1: In their minds when it's unfolding. And so when uh, the markets started going down, everybody seemed to think that this was going to be just like initially that it was going to be just like 2020, where, you know, we had two weeks to flatten the curve and then all of a sudden things came roaring back we also had a fed that took interest rates to zero and a government that handed out seven trillion dollars yeah that's not happening this time
0: it's essentially the (laughs) the opposite of that like that that's the we're feeling the after effects of some of that so yeah the, the situation and the environment couldn't be more apples and oranges so expecting the same results with different circumstances was wishful thinking
1: i seem to recall uh 1987 markets after the crash in October of '87. A lot of folks talking about what happened in 1981, what happened in 1962. There's a lot of parallels that you can kind of look for that markets will appear to be similar to. They're all unique in their own way, but the play, the drama seems to go in the same kind of fashion swift moved down, we kind of reset and then we have to go through a digestion period where yeah. either the earnings have contracted to a point where okay, now we need to get some forward momentum on earnings or the PE ratios were too high and they needed to contract to get back to reality. Either way, we go through this period of digestion where we're just kind of churning and we're going sideways and there was no one sector of the market that did really well. Nothing did very poorly, but it was just one of these digestion periods. You know, you're not supposed to go swimming 30 minutes they're after not. you eat, so right. you have to digest.
0: Yeah, I think another word for this digestion period is boring. Very and, boring. And, and it lulls people to sleep. Uh, people, investors lose interest. They become complacent. They're, they're not necessarily not paying attention, but you know, things aren't as high flying, high speed, you know, high octane all the time uh, in in the market. There's just this undetermined period of time where things are churning back and forth. Nothing's really happening. People just, I don't know what to do. Um, And I think of a phrase that we say all the time. It's that your, your patience will be rewarded. We tell people that all the time and the people that can hang in there through down markets and through these boring sideways markets are the ones who will be rewarded when things eventually turn back up.
1: Funny you should say that because just yesterday I had a conversation with a client, 51 years old. Through the past year and a half, he has continued to have his contributions every two weeks in his retirement account, in his retirement plan at work. Every two weeks, he had money going in to the same investments that we have held over and over and over. And I said, hey, that one fund, which is a pretty technology-heavy fund, got really slammed when the market initially went down. But so far this year, that fund is up 20%. He's like, we are up more than 20%. He goes, are you sure? And I said, no, your numbers are going to be better, and here's why. Because you did what we wanted you to do. Every two weeks, money continued to invest and buy more shares at lower and lower prices. And so when we get these moves like we've seen in this tech fund, your returns are going to be even better than the historical average because you were buying more and more shares when the prices were low. You did what we wanted you
0: to do. Sticking to the plan there is is super important. We talk about that all the time. People want to be tactical, though. When the market's going down, it's like, well, get me out. Get me. And even when not when the market's going down, even during periods where the market is doing nothing, it's like, well, there's got to be something that's working right now. Can't we just channel our money towards this? This is working. Historically, we know that the longer you give the market, the the better the returns get over the long term. And I think that that is... Kind of an overarching point of what Nick's post was about, because he was looking at the forward-looking returns during these sideways periods. He was making the case that these down and sideways markets are bullish for the market. Technically, you know, the numbers that he was putting out there were slightly better than just the normal market averages, but I think to me, when I read it, it just means that not necessarily coming out of a down and sideways market, but just in any market environment, giving your investments time to work through what is currently going on, the longer you give it, the, the better it's going to be. Not necessarily saying that this market environment, the down 20% or down a big, big whoosh down and then sideways for a long period of time is super bullish. I think just in general, long-term investing is bullish, as long as you stay stay the course.
1: Tim, when you're watching a baseball game, in between innings, do you change the channel?
0: I do not. I look at my phone a little bit, but I don't change the channel,
1: no. Do you? So there are plenty of people that do change the channel in between innings. Yeah. They're not our clients. What? We're just not going to be a good a good match for those kind of people. Because when markets are not doing anything, like they have been for the past six months or a year, there's a certain percentage of the population that says, I want to change the channel. I want to do something different. I want to get defensive. I want to get aggressive. I want to, I want to change this. I want to change that. Yeah. We are not for you.
0: Yeah. Because you want to know why? When you change the channel, by the time you flick it back, Pete Alonso has already hit a home run and you missed it. So, <laughs> so we're watching a Met game. Okay. This is a, this is a uh, embedded metaphor here for those of you listening. When you're easily distracted and, and trying to find something better to watch when nothing is going on, you're going to miss some of the moves by jumping in and out and, and trying to, wait, 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 what happened? Oh I missed a home run. Ah I missed that move up in the market. Ah End metaphor. Before we move on,
1: I did promise to mention something about NASDAQ. So NASDAQ went down more than the rest of the market in 2020, in the first half of 2022. The NASDAQ is now up more than the S&P 500. I think in May, the S&P 500 year to date is up something like 8 or 9%. Mm-hmm. Uh, NASDAQ is up about 20 plus percent. Yeah, Um, You know, I don't want to quote hard numbers because the month isn't over yet. The move in the NASDAQ has been really dramatic, driven a lot by the bigger names. And so, you know, if you have things like small cap, not really working.
0: And that's pretty typical, too. I think it speaks to having a little bit of everything, though, and a a diversified approach, because last year, the NASDAQ, like you said, it got that got hit the hardest. It makes sense that it's it's making up more than the stuff that didn't get hit as hard. Uh, It's also it has more ground to cover in terms of coming back to even Uh, it it, it makes sense. And it it, it also makes sense why you would want to have, you know, not just all of your money concentrated into one one area.
1: Something that we say often on videos and podcasts, but it, it bears repeating by the time Main Street realizes stocks are doing well, it's almost over, right? You've missed a big chunk of the move.
0: So, moving on to the second point that we wanted to talk about today, uh, there was an article from Market Watch uh, that had to had to do with uh, what they called in quotes late boomers as a group seem to have less in terms of retirement wealth than their uh, older. Counterparts, so the the older boomers and the younger boomers, and what it means for generations moving forward. The baby boomer generation started after
1: World War II, so uh, 1946, and ran through 1964. So that's an 18 year window, very large compared to other generations. So the late boomers are defined as people who were born between 1956 and 1964. Those people, late boomers, are now in the window of age 57 to 67. I am a late boomer. Right. As I have a six as my first digit. Uh, And so they said that late boomers really started coming of age Uh, Through Vietnam Mm -hmm. and Watergate. Sure, I remember seeing news about Vietnam. So the article goes on to talk about how the folks in the late boomer category have lower levels of wealth. And it doesn't matter if you're measuring total wealth or just their retirement wealth or just what they have in their 401k or IRA plans.
0: Yeah, I think they they gave uh, two reasons for for why that that could be the case. Um, one of them was the increase in full retirement age for Social Security. And then the other one uh, was the, the change from um, defined benefit plans at work being more popular to the change to what we've seen now and what we're used to today, defined contribution plans. So like the, the rise of the, the 401k, as opposed to defined benefit plans and pension plans and things that you don't really see too much of nowadays. We constantly see some frozen pension plans or frozen defined benefit plans that have turned into 401ks. Why do you think, I mean, how could that impact how much wealth somebody has, you know, an early boomer who has lower social security, full retirement age, and a pension and a defined benefit plan versus the later boomers who have the higher social security age and a 401k. Someone who was born
1: prior to 1956 they are getting the same retirement benefits, but they could retire. They could start collecting Social Security at 65. It's not that much of a gap because full retirement age for me is age 67, right? I don't think that's really a big deal. Yeah. And, and I would not be surprised if your generation will have a full retirement age of 70 right. or 71. I think the bigger issue is the defined benefit plans that no longer exist. For our listeners out there, there's a difference in retirement plans. You could either have a defined benefit plan, which tells you you are going to get this benefit of X number of dollars every month in retirement for the rest of your life versus a defined contribution plan, which means you can put in X number of dollars each year while you're working for your retirement. In the 70s, a lot of organizations started realizing that, hey, folks are living longer, we've had more employees, we haven't done as good a job with our investments, and now we have this growing liability that we're gonna have to carry forever. And they just said, we don't want to do this anymore. So we're going to shift the onus to the participant, to the employee, to say, hey, save your own money for retirement. And so that's that was a big shift. Yeah. Now it now became our responsibility. And not, the late boomers were the first ones to have an entire working career with
0: a 401k. When I read that, I was... Trying to think, were they painting that as a positive or a negative? Because I feel like it seems like it would, on the surface, be a positive. Plenty of people today still don't have 401ks. um, And these are the first generation of people that have had multiple decades to put money into a 401k. But then, like you said, the responsibility was shifted onto the participants to put their own money away for retirement instead of having it done for them. And I think that's where the big problem has ar- uh, arisen for, for people, because as we know, people are bad at saving uh, for themselves and, and putting money away.
1: It, part of it is uh, not having good savings habits, but part of it too is, you know, if you live in uh, Nassau County or if you live in Monmouth County or or Ocean County, it's very expensive to own a home mm-hmm. to the point where... You know, when when I was growing up, my mom didn't work. Uh, My dad worked and brought home enough money to take care of the entire family. Now that's not really possible for most people. And so it becomes very, very expensive. And so when you layer on top of that, oh, and you're on your own for retirement, too, it really becomes a problem that is so far out in the future for most people that they say i'll get to it someday right. and someday never gets there retirement comes before someday
0: comes yeah that kind of just jogged something in my mind too that it, you know regardless of where you live or how much money you make you know they they also put limits on how much you can put away into these retirement accounts too so not only are they putting the responsibility on the participant they're also limiting what participants can put put into these plans. I've never gotten a straight
1: answer, but I know that you and I have had this conversation. I've had it with Brendan also and Casey. Why are there limits on how much money you could put into an IRA? If I want to put $50,000 into an IRA, I should be able to do
0: that. Yeah. I'm sure that there would be people that could figure out a way to Make them regret doing something like that, like changing the rules. But that's going to be the case regardless. So I think, yeah, if people want to put more money away for retirement uh, and have less money to live on because that money's going away for retirement, so you 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 know you're sacrificing dollars in your bank account today. Um, then that that's up to them. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see the shift from the defined benefits plans to. Uh, the defined contribution plans, the sweet spot it are the are some of the people that uh, worked enough to get a pretty substantial pension or they still have a job that still pays them a pension and they have a retirement plan with like a 401k or a 457 or a 403b, things like that. Um, there aren't too many of those jobs remaining, but that's a, that's a sweet spot for people right now.
1: Sure is. So one of the comments at the bottom of this article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, a lot of the comments were excuses or people trying to explain away like, oh, we had it the, the hardest. Right. Every generation yeah. has it the hardest. There was one comment in particular that brought back so many things that I have forgotten about. And he said, you know, the, the writer of the comment said a lot of things started changing in, with the tax law. Uh, of 19, the tax law changes in 1986. So this was, I believe, TEFRA, the Economic and Fiscal Responsibility mm-hmm. Act, or as someone used to call it, uh, tax every effing resource available. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> <Clever>. uh, Yeah, <laughs> 1986 tax law uh, removed income averaging. I totally forgot about income averaging. And I know prior to turning on the mic, I asked you if you had even heard of it. No. So income averaging allowed you, say you were a lawyer. You'd just gone through law school. You weren't making money. You were in law school. Or you were a doctor and you just spent the last three, three years going through med school or your boards getting certified. And suddenly you're making all of this money. And you're faced with paying taxes and paying back student loans that you borrowed and things like that. What income averaging allowed you to do was take the average of what your income was over the past five years and smooth it out. So you had $0, 000, 000, $200,000. 000. You could smooth that out to show you had income averaged of $40,000 over the last five years. It gave a break. To people who suddenly started making money after not having money. It was great for business owners, great for professionals, great for a huge chunk of people. And yeah. it really helped a lot. Things like credit card interest, student loan interest, fully deductible prior to 1986, if you had meals and entertainment, say you were a salesperson, you could take people to the Met game and write off everything, including dinner and a movie or whatever. You could write everything off. The real estate depreciation schedule, if you were Donald Trump back in the 80s, it was way more aggressive than it, than it is now. Yeah. So there were a lot more things that were available then. Yes, they did change some of the tax brackets, so there there was some benefit there. But a lot of other things just went went by the board.
0: There, there was another point too that they brought up about the the late boomers and why they were being impacted uh, for retirement wealth and wealth in general. Uh, great recession or the you know two thousand eight, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, and they said. I don't remember specifically, but I'm pretty sure they said something along the lines that they didn't have time to re- to recover or to make the money back. I I, I didn't go through it, but I disagree. <laughs> that was 15 years ago. I think if you made some bad mistakes and didn't, in terms of your investments, at least, let's yes. say you, you lost money in the market. Uh, if you took your money out of the market and never got back into the market, then yes, you didn't have time to make it back. Right. Uh, but... Like we were talking about before, people that stayed the course or got back in shortly thereafter have had 15 years to make their money back. I think part of the
1: the reasoning behind that were people who not only got hurt very badly with their investments and in their retirement plan in the, in the market, but then they lost their job. Then had trouble finding a job in 2009, 10, sometimes 2011. I mean, there were... You know, you lose a job for three years in your 40s or early 50s. That's really hard to recover from. So you're, you're digging a financial hole that's going to be very, it's, it's life changing in that, in that regard. Some good topics to cover. We talk about uh, things like this with clients all the time. So if there's questions out there, we welcome them.
0: And that's going to wrap up episode 4:45 of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. Tom Malouli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, And should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast.